to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. Last Sunday was the first Sunday of Advent where we sort of did a standalone talk, and then this week we're beginning a series on, on, uh, on the book of Luke, and um, of course it fits nicely these first couple, uh, these next three Sundays, including tonight, that we'll continue or we'll sort of complete our Advent season, but we'll continue in the book of Luke all through next year, uh, probably aim to finish it right around Easter, and so we'll end up timing some of the chapters to coincide and overlap with uh, the season and the calendar of the church, which would be a wonderful thing. Um, now, some of you know this, but I, I met my wife, Holly, in college, and uh, when I met her, I was a junior at, at uh, Oral Roberts University, and she was a freshman, and uh, I had come from Malaysia, and even though my family had lived in the U.S. before, my parents had been in Bible school in Portland, Oregon, uh, when I was 10, my sister was 13, and so we had lived in the U.S. during those years, 1988 to 1991, there you have it. And uh, the age, you can do the math for those of you that are distracted now and calculating how old I was. Not that it matters. I was 10 in 88. There you go. Um, Moved back to Malaysia in 91 and then came to ORU in the spring, I think it was, January of 96. Uh, Anyway, I had kind of worked ahead and caught up on semesters and, and all this stuff. And so when I met Holly, I was a junior. She was a freshman. But I'd only really been back in the States for about a year and a half or so. And uh, some of you have heard me tell this story, but we actually do have pictures to prove it. Had I had more time this week, I would have dug one up from the old shoe boxes in the basement and showed it to you. But when I met her, I, I had a collection of sweaters that would have made Bill Cosby jealous. I mean, it was, uh, we recently had with our leadership team here, the Sunday night leadership team, we had our Christmas party on Monday night. It was an ugly sweater party. And uh, some of them were uglier than what I used to wear. But uh, only mine were uh, the only sweaters I I had because it was sort of hand-me-downs and things that people gave me when they heard that that I was coming to America to go to school. And they had the suspicion that it was going to be cold and I needed, you know, Russian woolly earmuffs and scarves and all this stuff, you know. And um, so, so anyway, when I met her, I was probably wearing one of those sweaters. I had hair that was really, really short and these gold-rimmed glasses. And, uh, and she looked at me and thought, hmm, probably a sweet, nerdy, foreign student guy, you know. And I met her, we met through some mutual friends, and she had these blonde highlights in her hair and was very tan. And I, and I thought, hmm, probably like a cheerleader from California, you know. Forgive the stereotype. And uh, as somehow we, we ended up hanging out, and we kept spending a little bit more time together and all of that. And um, I found out that she was really a farm girl from Iowa, and she found out that I was really a sweet, nerdy, foreign student guy. And uh, see, that works every time. I've said that. Uh, anyway, uh, so, so uh, but somehow through some guidance of the Lord, uh, we kept ha- spending time together and getting to know one another. But let's just say that I was um, more ready to advance in the relationship than she was. You know, I was getting, I, I think it was around the end of my junior year, I'm thinking ahead and, th- and I'm thinking, you know, I sort of had this uh, sense that, yeah, I think I can commit to this girl, I really want to pursue this, and, and, uh, and she 
you know, wasn't saying this, but was kind of like, you know, I came from this small town in Iowa where there was a handful of Christian guys, and here I am at this Christian university, and there's, you know, she didn't really say that, but let's just say she was more slow in seeing the light. Um, so as a result, we'd spend time together, and we always had this connection when we would talk, and, and a great chemistry and all of that in the conversations, but she just, you know, wasn't sure. And, um, the, the last time, we broke up maybe twice, but the last time we broke up was the summer of 2000. It was right as I was moving here to come and, and be an apprentice to Ross and to work at New Life and all of that. And so I thought when I moved here, you know, loaded all my stuff in my Jeep, had John Egan with me in the car, and we drove the 10, 11-hour drive all the way through Kansas, you know, if you've ever made that drive from Tulsa to, yeah, it, you're shaking your head. It's terrible. I-70, you know, it's just straight and flat. Um, anyway, so, so made that drive, moved out here, and was fully convinced that, okay, it's over, I'm sort of starting over, and I even had this, you know, thing in my head, I'm starting a new life at New Life, you know, and, and, uh, and a few months later, I had no contact with Holly, and a few months later, I get an email from her saying, hey, please pray about such and such that's happening in my family, and, and I decided not to email her, I decided to call her. So I called her and we talked for hours and hours and then she said that she and some friends were going to come out and visit some other friends here over their fall break in October. And, and I was telling myself, okay, I'm not, you know, listen, we don't really know where this is going and hey, I know how this story ends and all this stuff. Well, she comes out here and um, I, I, there are, the other two gals she came with decided to go off and do some other sightseeing and I had loaned them my car and I had her car, we had her car, and Ross sent me on this errand to go look for something up in Woodland Park. And we drive her little Ford Taurus up in Woodland Park, and it breaks down. And it breaks down there, and we spent a couple hours waiting. This is in mid-October, it's just beautiful up in Woodland Park, and, uh, and we're waiting for a tow truck, and we end up have, you know, spending the whole day together. Well, later that evening, we're talking, and she's telling me now about the journey that she's been on over the last couple of months, and how she's you know, come to see, you know, whatever, 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 and so I'm ready, blah, blah, blah. And I'm thinking, you know, it's taking everything within me to not say, all right, let's, you know, get back together. I'm trying to be more prudent than that, you know, trying to hold my cards closer to the vest, but I was never very good at that. So, so I, I, I asked her, I said, well, how, how do I know for sure? How do I know that this is for real, you know? And, and how do you respond to that, really, right? And so, so I think what she said was, well, I don't know. You'll just have to trust me. And the good news is I did, and the good news is she was right, and the good news is it's been a wonderful nine and a half years. So yay. Yay for us in our marriage. Now, I'm telling you all that because I just wanted to tell you about us. No. Because <laughs> it's love is in the air and you're all sappy and whatever. No. I'm telling you that because, because in the season of Advent, we are, we talked last week about the sense of longing, that the first week of Advent traditionally is when we focus on the return of the King and Christ's return. And so there's this ache inside of us that says, wait, all is not well. The world is in exile, but wait, the King will return and set everything right. And we talked about that last week. And, and today, tonight, and the second Sunday of Advent, there's a number of places that we can go, but I want us to talk a little bit about the subject of hope. And so often when God comes to us with this message of hope, as we're about to see here in Luke, the first chapter of Luke's gospel, the first thing we want to say is, okay, well, how do, I, how do I know that this is for real? 
How do I know that it's for real this time? How do I know that there's no games here, that you're not toying with my emotions? How do I know that this hope that I've been nursing in my heart for the last several years or whatever, how do I know that this is real? Now, sometimes in charismatic circles, we have this myth that we spread that we say, well, if God would just show up, then we would all just know for sure. Uh, I, I heard a, a charismatic evangelist say very confidently, look, a miracle will settle the issue. And once there's a miracle, everyone will believe. Well, then why did the soldiers who saw Jesus heal Malchus's ear after Peter had cut up, why did the soldiers proceed to arrest Jesus? How come a miracle doesn't always settle the issue? Why is it that God can be very present, that God can show up and yet be missed altogether? Because we say sometimes, well, hey, look, all we just need is for God to show up. And sometimes we use these phrases, or we need revival, or we need this, or we need that, and if God would just show up. But you know what? He did. He came with skin on. He came. The incarnation happened, and yet they missed him. The first chapter of John's Gospel is this striking monologue where John says, hey, look, the Word became flesh and dwelt among them, and yet they did not receive Him. How can this be? How can it be that God comes, and yet there are those that say, what? Who? Where? Huh? How can that be? How can it be that God can be in our midst, working, speaking, present, bringing life, bringing hope, and yet, there be the, 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 there's this response can be, no, I don't want that. I'm not sure. I don't see it. Uh-uh. This isn't happening. How can that really be the case? It seems that God can sometimes be the God that, who is seen but not heard. The God who is in our midst and yet not noticed. The God of whom Jacob said at Bethel, when he has his stairway to heaven dream, you remember this? The clouds open up and he sees the stairway and angels ascending and descending. And he wakes up and he says, Surely God was in this place and I was not aware of it. This God that we confess and that we worship can somehow be present and among us and yet missed. His very presence in our midst, the source of hope, the source of joy can yet somehow be misunderstood and even rejected. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. I'll read the first four verses and stop for a bit, and then we'll kind of take this in three sections tonight. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, the most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Now, this is interesting. Luke, obviously not one of the twelve, but spent a lot of time traveling with Paul. If this is the same Luke, we're not 100% sure. It could be. Uh, you know, uh, there's fair reason, I suppose, to suggest that that is the same Luke. Um, but he's writing this, and different commentators have suggested maybe Theophilus is a real person, maybe Theophilus, which, which literally means lovers of God or God lovers, maybe he's writing this to people who he knows are, are, are already followers, who love this God, who believe in this God. He's writing this for them. We're not exactly certain of his, his reasons. 
But he does talk about going to the first eyewitnesses and the servants of the word. That's a peculiar phrase. Uh, what does that phrase mean? Well, in those days, it was sort of common to say that a, a, um, a storyteller is better than a written down story. And so there would be in their communities people that were almost, in a way, designated storytellers. The ones who would say, yeah, look, we all know the story and we all know how it goes, but hey, you tell it because you tell it really good. And so th- these are, in a way, the servants of the word that Luke would go to and say, okay, tell me about this, tell me about this, tell me about this. And then he commits to writing it down. Um, we go on here in Luke. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly, but they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and, when he, was, and he was serving as priest before God, He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. And then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. Now have in the back of your minds the Old Testament reading that we heard tonight, because here are some familiar phrases lifted from Malachi. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. And the angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak Imagine for a moment how you would make signs to people without, you know, charades. How do you do the charade of, oh, I just saw an angel? Anyway. (laughs) Wife, pregnant, baby. Acting this out. And when his time of service was complete, he returned home. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In, those, in these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from the people. Now, it's one thing to sort of read the story and say, okay, well, here, look, here's a couple. It's a nice couple. They haven't been able to have kids. And here comes an angel and says, you're going to get to have kids. And oh, wow, isn't that nice? God's, you know, giving children to the barren. Now, listen, the story is much, much, much more than that. 
Obviously, because of the rich stories and the narratives that as Jews they would have been nourished on, they were very familiar with the stories of great men and women who had been barren for a long time, going all the way back, of course, to Abraham and Sarah. And they're thinking about Abraham and Sarah. They're thinking about Rachel, who couldn't have any children until she finally bore Jacob two sons. You think about Samson being born to parents who could not have children. Do you think about Samuel as an answer to his mother Hannah's prayers? There's this rich tradition of God coming to the ones who had previously been childless and then giving them children. But also, it was not just, hey, Merry Christmas. It was this special thing of saying, look, I'm doing this because there's something of the purposes of God that are flowing through this household. Something of God's divine plan. Something of God's massive story of redemption that's now coming in and absorbing you into the story. It's going to include you. Obviously, we know the Abraham and Sarah story is because God is bringing a family to them through whom all the nations will be blessed. Obviously, we think of that with Jacob. We think of the purpose that was on Samson's life as a judge and Samuel's life. And so now imagine what John is thinking when Gabriel says, look, you've been childless all these years, but now you're going to have a son. He knows what this means. He knows the weight of this. This isn't just, oh, yay. This is, uh uh-oh. Are you saying that we are now all of a sudden caught up in the flow of God's saving story? Are you telling me that our family, that my wife and I, previously outsiders, previously scorned because of our barrenness, are you telling me that we are all of a sudden been brought into the center of the stream of God's saving purposes? Moreover, Gabriel goes on and says, look, it's not just any son that you're going to have. You're going to have the one that's coming in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn back the hearts of the father, all this stuff. He knows those words. Those are Malachi's words. And for Zechariah as a priest, he would have understood that what Gabriel was telling him is that the long-awaited hope is starting to arrive. That something they had been yearning for, waiting for, was beginning to happen. And more than that, it was involving them. So it's easy, it would be easy to make a villain out of Zechariah and say, well, okay, you know, come on, Zachary, why, why don't you believe? I mean, you have an angel before you. I mean, if I had an angel, I believe, I mean, most of us would settle for an impression in our heart. <laughs> he has an angel appear before him. You know, how, how can I be sure? It's just, I, I, and it's easy to sort of villainize Zachary and say, oh, come on, Zachary, why are you so un- unbelieving? But understand that these were people who had longed for centuries, for the arrival of the Messiah. How long, O Lord, must we live under the oppression? How long, O Lord, is it now, Lord? Are you going to restore things now? How come we are still trampled down by these pagan empires? How come, Lord? And so when Gabriel says, look, this Elijah person is coming, and it's actually going to be your son, there's this thing in in John that must have risen up that said, could it really be, dare I believe this hope, or am I going to be dashed again? But if he's not a villain, he's not exactly a hero either. It would be wrong to sort of romanticize Zechariah, to paint him as a villain, or romanticize him as a hero, because he's not the hero that says, okay, Lord, yes, an angel, you got it. What do I need to do? You know, this, is, this is a flawed man. 
a man who's been chosen to be part of God's saving purposes, and yet a man who's wrestling with the disappointment that he's already experienced in life. The disappointment of not having had children. The disappointment of having had to wait so long for Messiah. That when Gabriel says this, Zechariah is grasping for another sign. Gabriel goes on in, in the chapter and visits Mary. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, many of you have heard this, but in the Jewish culture, this idea of being betrothed or pledged to another man has all the strength of marriage with none of the benefits, if you will. They couldn't live together or anything like that. But the being pledged, the betrothal thing, was strong enough that, like Matthew alluded to in worship, if Joseph was going to put her away, it would have been uh, the, the, the equivalent to a divorce. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And Mary was greatly troubled at his words. I find it interesting that both Zechariah and Mary's response to an angel is one of being troubled and one of fear. I wonder if we are too casual sometimes with the songs that we sing and the prayers that we pray about angels and the holiness of God. That if you could really see it, maybe we would tremble too. And I wonder if we are too sort of flippant about, oh, angels and God and holy, and here they are hearing from an angel, seeing an angel, and they're both afraid and troubled. But the angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And you will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. Listen, these phrases are messianic phrases. These phrases are, are Isaiah phrases. Phrases that they knew, that they were hoping for. When's it going to happen? And Gabriel's saying, It's happening. And it's happening through you. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. All phrases from Isaiah. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And then the angel left her. For both Zechariah and Mary, Gabriel's message could at its core be summed up in this. A long-awaited hope has now arrived. A long awaited hope has now arrived. Imagine, it it, would be hard for us to do this, but if we could somehow try to enter their world and remember all the promises that Israel had, that they would have a land, that they would have these laws, that they would be able to obey and worship the Lord, and yet they live as slaves in Egypt. Then they get delivered, and then they get brought brought through the desert. Then they enter the land, and then they have to leave it in exile languished in Babylon as slaves and then they come out of it and they come home and they rebuild it and there's joy only to see them being ruled by other empires. And here they are under the Roman thumb saying, oh, 
when is this going to happen? When will God be faithful to his promise? When will God set things right? Gabriel's message is now. Gabriel's message is now. It's coming. And more than that, it's flowing through your house. How remarkable must that have been? Not only, it would, but it would have been enough for Gabriel to say, look, it's happening in your generation. Wow, amazing. How much more to have heard it's happening through you, through your house, Mary, through your womb. The Messiah is coming. How remarkable must that have been? The two questions that Zechariah and Mary ask, I think, are interesting to look at. Zechariah's question is, how can I be sure of this? How, 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 how can I be sure? And again, I, I don't want to villainize him because, look, if we were there, if we had experienced this long hope and disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, of course you're going to say, how can I be sure? But yet, Gabriel takes that question as a demonstration of Zechariah's lack of belief, lack of faith. That he's looking for certainty, looking for proof. Look, I want to know for sure. Mary's question to Gabriel is, how will this be? How will this be? It's almost as if Zechariah is saying, look, how can I know for sure? How can, how can I know for sure? I want to know some certainty. And it's almost as if Mary is saying, I, 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 I don't necessarily need another sign. I just, how is it going to happen? I just need an explanation. I don't need certainty. I just need explanation. You know that I'm very, very, How's this going to unfold? I wonder sometimes if we come to God, come to the Bible, come to church to scratch our itch for certainty. To say, well, I just need to know for certain. And so with every book that comes out about new scientific proof of this or that, old earth, young earth, or whatever, it, we, we sort of run to that because, yes, more certainty that this really is true. Have you heard they found Noah's Ark or, you know, whatever. I just need more certainty. Ironically, sometimes our quest for certainty looks like needing to hear God's voice again. And part of what compounded the dating process for Holly and I was we were in this hyper-intense environment that everybody felt like they needed God to tell them everything. You know, it was sort of like, look, God needs to tell you what classes to sign up for. Or there's this thing called a degree plan sheet. And so the, the, the questions would come, well, well, well hey, Holly, now, has God spoken to you about Glenn? And she's like, I, uh, well, if, you, if you're in doubt, you know, the devil's the author of confusion. <laughs> what a wonderful thing to say to young people who are trying to figure out who they're supposed to marry. Well, God is not the author of confusion. When do you not have confusion? I, I, honestly, I think... Most of what we're looking for when we want God to speak is we're looking for God to take away all risk. 
We're looking for God. God, just speak. Just so I just I'll know for sure. How can I know for sure? I'm about to go and tell my very old wife that we're going to have a son, and she's going to say, Mm-mm, "Not tonight." <laughs> and I just need to know for sure. How can I know for sure? We just, we just, just, I just need another word, another sign, or something else. I wonder if that is a never-ending wormhole. He had an angel appear, and he was asking for more proof. Can I tell you that your journey with Christ will never, ever come to this place of certainty? that you will always be required to meet this hope with faith? How do I know that God is going to do this? How do I know that God has called us? How do I know that Jesus came? How do I, how, how do I know that this hope is real? Hope must be met with faith. That you won't ever get the risk taken out of it. A good friend of mine this year was going through a decision about a career move. And uh, he's a writer and a PhD in English, very smart. And so when, when he hears the Lord, it's in poetry, you know, sort of, not really. But, uh, but he's going for a run trying to decide which job to take. And he has this, just this thought, maybe, pleasure and pain in both paths lie or something like that, right? And it was, it's, I, I think the second line was in perfect rhyme. I, I don't know, but God doesn't speak to me with iambic pentameter, you know. But, um, but there's this sense of, look, any decision in life, there's risk. There's pleasure, there's pain. There's risk. How can I be sure? You won't be. But if we're going to take hold of hope, it must be met with faith. To say, all right, I believe. And so Mary says, okay, all right, all right, I just, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know for sure, and I, I, I'm not. But her faith leads her to a beautiful response, a response actually that's not unlike the ancient responses of Isaiah hearing the Lord say, who will go, whom shall we send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Or Samuel, the boy Samuel, who hears this voice speaking, and, and says, speak, Lord, for your servant listens. Mary answers in that tradition when she says, Be it unto me, I am your servant. If hope must be met with faith, then it's faith that will help take us by the hand and faith that leads us to kind of a quiet surrender. To say, all right, I have no idea how you're going to do this. And I really don't know how I can know for sure. I don't have... Uh, but I'm your servant. I surrender. Be it unto me according to your word. It's interesting to me that both Mary and Zechariah respond with a sort of silence. <laughs> One chose it and the other was made silent. But it's also interesting that Zechariah asked for a sign and he got it. But the sign was his own silence. chew on that. I just think it's interesting that maybe the place the Lord is leading us to is to say, all right, there's some, some sort of a quiet surrender 
That it's not a palms out, wait, wait, how can I? But more of a palms up, be it unto me according to your word. I'm your servant. Not, hey, whoa, hey, how? how? Just, but, okay, I'll surrender. When we respond that way, I think we begin to see something remarkable about God. Because our faith rests on God's faithfulness. And there's something about the way God works. You know something remarkable about Luke's gospel? You can put that other point up there, Jeff. I didn't have the right wording. There you go. There's something remarkable about Luke's gospel. Over the next several months as we study this together on Sunday evenings, think for a moment about how many outsiders are brought in in Luke's gospel. Luke has this stretch of parables all through Samaria that Jesus tells. They're outsiders. Samaritans, they're not supposed to be included. Luke is the one who traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, as if to say, this Messiah is not just an Israel hope, it's a humankind hope. It's the hope of all humanity. And where Matthew begins his genealogy with Abraham, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, as if to say, look, there are no outsiders here. We've all been brought in because of Jesus. And I wonder if that theme is close to Luke's heart because he himself is a Greek, is a Gentile, not one of the twelve, not a Jew. And his favorite travel buddy was Paul, whose message was, look, the Gentiles who once were afar off have now been brought near. The reason our New Testament reading was taken from that passage in Romans tonight was to tell us this. Jesus' coming is what now brings outsiders in. It, he perfectly fulfilled Israel's calling, Abraham's calling, what Abraham and Israel could not do on their own, be a blessing to all nations, open it up for all peoples. They could not quite carry it on their own. And Jesus comes as the seed of Abraham, the faithful Israelite, and says, look, all who once were far off are now brought in. Zechariah and Elizabeth were in some ways cultural outsiders for their barrenness. Mary was certainly about to become a cultural outsider, uh, outsider for her unmarried pregnancy. And yet, here they are, right in the center of God's story. Right in the middle of the flow of God's saving plan. It would be easy tonight to sort of say, oh, well, so what is God speaking to you and just hang on to that and believe in that. But that would do a great deal of damage. Because the point is not to walk away and say, okay, so what are all the things that I've kind of been journaling about? And, you know, the first thing to catch tonight is that this story is your story. This is our story together. That God has come. The carrier of hope life, of joy, Jesus has arrived, that he's here, Christ is with us, Christ is in our midst, Christ goes with us from this place. How can I be sure of this? I don't know. But can we say, okay, I just, I want to I believe that. 
I want to believe that your faithfulness is real. That just as you fulfilled your promise by sending Jesus, can I believe that that is unfolding even now? That his kingdom, which will have no end, is playing out in your life, in your homes, in your families? What does that look like? For Israel, hanging on to this idea of God's faithfulness was a very, very dangerous thing, very difficult thing, because all around them, there were no signs of confirmation. In fact, one of the greatest two verses of God's faithfulness is taken from a book called Lamentations, not Celebrations. And Lamentations, the tradition has it, is written when they're in exile in Babylon. Imagine what it's like to be out of your land that you were promised, unable to worship the way you always have, and yet to believe that God has not forgotten you. What's that like? Imagine what it's like to not see any signs of confirmation that you are in fact God's people and that God is in fact faithful to come. Imagine that there are no signs of that and yet to keep on clinging to His faithfulness. This is where this verse comes in in Lamentations 3 where it says, Because of the Lord's great love we are not consumed for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in Him, to the one who seeks Him. Oh, can we become the people whose hope is in Him. Can we become the people whose hope is in Him against all outside evidence, against all difficulty, beyond the externals? Let's pray. Advent is this strange mix of recognizing that Jesus is the ultimate demonstration of God's faithfulness. He really did come. And yet, while it is this looking back and saying, oh yes, this is how we know God is faithful, there's something about this longing. How do we know He will be faithful in the end? How do we know He will be faithful every day between now and then? How do we know? How can we be sure? Maybe we can just say with palms out, I am your servant. Let it be. Let it be according to your word that you are faithful, that your mercies are new. Over and against the signs of my job, or my home, or my family, or my friends, over and against all circumstances, we hear the word of the Lord. The Messiah has come.
hope has arrived. We are somehow caught up in it. We have been brought into it. Outsiders now in. Father, let this hope flood our hearts. Holy Spirit, teach us to cling to your faithfulness. Even with a weak and feeble faith, to humbly, quietly say, all right, I surrender. All right, let it be that you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. These lights are being lit and carried out at the end of the service tonight as a sign of the light of Christ going out into the world ahead of us, with us, all around us. And so may the Lord be with you this week. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless.